RadioInfluence.com. You're listening to Crush Performance with the Crusher, Jeff Crushell. Get in on the talent grid and text Crush at 101260 with your questions, comments, or smart-ass remarks. Because every kid watches TV and they watch the NBA or they watch Major League Baseball or they watch the NFL, whatever sport they watch, WNBA, it doesn't matter. And what they see is people just being really cool. So they think that's how they're going to act. And they haven't, they haven't even figured out which foot to use as a pivot foot and they're going to act like they're really good players. You see it all the time. See it at every AAU tournament, you see it at every high school game. So recruiting kids that are like really upbeat and loving life and love the game and have this tremendous appreciation for when their teammates do something well, that's hard. That's hard. It's really hard. So on our team, we, me, my coaching staff, we put a huge premium on body language. And if your body language is bad, you will never get in the game, ever. I don't care how good you are, you will never get in the game. And welcome to Crush Performance, everybody. Today, episode number four of our Talent and Talent ID mini-series here today. We are going to have a very, very quick start because we've got an important conversation and so much to cover today. We're going to look at what might be one of the most precious commodities in our sporting system, the coaches. Outside of the athletes, what's more important? Well, I could tell you this, nothing has more influence on how our sporting system operates than our coaches. And today we are going to talk with Dr. Alex Roberts from Latrobe University at Melbourne, Australia. She is one of the few researchers on the planet who has done a deep dive looking into coaching, coaching development, and the influence of coaching, not just in how organizations operate, but also in how we select and identify talent in our systems. A fascinating conversation. Her recent paper, The Coach's Eye, Exploring Coach Decision-Making During Talent Identification, is going to be the theme today. It absolutely blew my mind. Dr. Roberts and her research are bringing to light aspects of the coaching world that don't get a lot of consideration. For example, the concept of coaching bias, which we will address at length today. This particular bias isn't necessarily negative, but it refers to the influence the coach's personal preference have on how they select players, even how they coach players, and put together their team environment. We'll also look at the role of the coach in the selection of athletes for their organization. If the coach's values, the organization values, and the talent ID specialists, the scouts, if their values aren't aligned, imagine the problems that creates. Within the organization, if you're bringing in athletes that don't fit your value system or the coach's value system, it's going to be very, very difficult to succeed. And on the other side, the athlete side, this is as important. You have to make sure you're not being recruited or signed or drafted into an organization that doesn't suit your skill set. Not that skills can't be developed. But you have to either be incredibly open-minded. You have to have that growth mindset, knowing that you can adapt and, and develop in different ways. But if there's a huge discrepancy 
between your skill set, your approach to sport, your beliefs in sport, and what the organization and the coach value, I think that's going to be a real uphill battle for any athlete. And likewise, this is as important in the elite sporting pathways as it is at the recreational levels, and maybe more so at the recreational levels. We just need to be aware of this. We really do need to be aware of this as we're selecting teams and helping kids get through the system, and maybe most importantly, as we work to keep kids involved in sport and activity for life. Again, the recreational levels of sport drive the entire sporting model. And the idea of the recreational level is not to create elite performers. Elite performers will just be a beautiful byproduct of a really, really good process. The goal is to create an environment where youth and people enjoy sport and they want to continue doing it, whether they take a high performance pathway or whether they just do it for fun. That's the real goal of sport. And coaches, of course, are an integral player at the success of all these systems. And so today, let's dive into it. If you have any questions, comments, smart remarks, get to us. Crushperformance.com is the website. Info at Crushperformance is our email. Follow me on Twitter, at Jeff Crush. And right after this quick break, everybody, we will be joined by Dr. Alex Roberts as we discuss her incredible research and her paper, The Coach's Eye, exploring coach decision-making during talent identification. It's right after this on Crush Performance. Find out what it takes to be a top performer. Get the Crush Newsletter, podcast and performance info at crushperformance.com. Now back to the show. Today on Crush Performance, it is episode number four of our Talent and Talent ID series. Today we are focusing on the coach, the all-important leader of your team. The coach plays a critical role in how the organization operates, quite obviously, but they also have probably the biggest influence over the values of the organization. And interestingly enough, the coaches themselves can skew or steer those values based on their strengths, their past, and their present preferences. And it not only influences how a team and organization might operate from a technical, tactical, and strategic standpoint, it probably has a great influence on how they select players into their system, more than you might realize. And if the values of the coach and the value of the organization don't align, there's big trouble, big, big trouble. And this is from the grassroots right up to the highest levels of sport. It's a fascinating concept and a concept we're going to get to today. If you have any questions, if you have any comments, if you have any smart remarks, reach out. Crushperformance.com is the website. Info at Crushperformance is our email. You can follow me on Twitter at Jeff Crush. And you can follow us on all other social media platforms. Search out Crush Performance and we can hook out there. All right. Without any further ado, we are joined now by Dr. Alex Roberts from the Trobe University in Melbourne, Australia. She focuses on sport and exercise science and sport coaching. Alex, welcome to the show. I have really been looking forward to this conversation. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, you're, you have a really interesting perspective of this whole sporting model, and it's incredibly important to the fabric of sport for sure. So, you know, after our conversations in trying to understand better what talent is and where talent ID fits into the whole thing, 
every single conversation we've had so far, coaching and coaches comes up. And that's sort of your area of expertise. Alex, maybe if I'll ask you here, you know, I've always been interested in how our athletes have wound up being who they are, whether they're the world's top performers or whether they're collegiate athletes or whether they're just lifelong participants in sport. What is sort of the road that led you down to investigating and researching coaching? Yeah, um, I mean, that's a really good question. I could answer it very glibly with, you know, those who can't do coach, right? <laughs> um, but yeah, so I mean, really, I started off as an athlete, as most of us interested in this area do. I was at a fairly high level across a couple of sports, my main ones being hockey, water polo and rowing. So that would be field hockey for you Canadian listeners. Ah. Um, and yeah, just I did that the whole way through school, um, again, fairly high level and then ended up. Um, lucky enough to get a D1 scholarship to come over to the US for rowing. Um, and so did that for a few years, ended up getting injured and um, exiting that program, which is a whole nother developmental story. Um, but basically after finishing up my um, athletic career, I still wanted to stay involved and I'd done a little bit of coaching you know, throughout as again, most athletes do. Um, but then I just got really interested in this idea you know, of improving athletic performance. But then I realized that probably the biggest aspect of an athlete's performance is their coach. And by improving coaching, I realized I could improve effectively a lot more athletes a lot quicker because if I can improve 10 coaches and then they all go out and improve 10 athletes each, that's a hundred athletes that I've helped with only helping 10 coaches. Um, so that's, roundabout way how I got into this whole idea of looking at coaching I just think it's fascinating that we can have such an impact on so many athletes so early um, and then the talent side came in because again throughout my own athletic career I was identified into rowing several times um, both before I started it and then once I started but I wasn't very good I kept getting identified in through various you know talent ID programs through the Australian Institute of Sport and things like that and so, yeah, that's kind of why I stuck with it was because all these people keep saying I could be good at it, so I might as well keep doing it. Um, and then, yeah, that, that idea just sort of fascinated me that, you know, when I was 12, 13, not you know, particularly good at any sport, these guys came in and said you could be good at rowing. Ten years later, I was in the U.S. on a Div 1 scholarship for rowing. Um, you know, how could they tell? How could they know that early that I was going to be okay at that sport? You know, yeah, sure, I was tall, but there's a lot more to sport and especially to rowing than just being tall. Um, so that's kind of where those two intersected was, you know, yeah, how did these people know that I was going to be good? And then how did they develop me to the point where I did become good enough to get a scholarship? Um, so yeah, that's sort of my journey to where I am. Yeah. Um, what a fascinating, yeah. what a fascinating journey and having those two components together. That's all powerful. You know, as we move through this, through this talent and talent ID series over this year. It's one of our major themes on the show this year. And we kicked it off with a great conversation with Dr. Joe Baker from York university who kind of gave us the lay of the land, sort of a holistic, you know, 30,000 foot view of where we are in terms of talent. And, you know, one of the interesting things that came out of that conversation, Alex, is just the fact that, you know, we don't really truly have a consensus on what talent really is, you know, around the world from coach to coach, organization to organization, we all might emphasize different things or, or value different things, which could, could, could really impact development. But to have your experience as an elite athlete and probably having a number of great coaches, as well as, as the, 
you know, sort of the talent identification uh, uh, part of your story. Uh, what an interesting combination that's led you to where you are today. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think so. And, you know, both good coaches and bad coaches have definitely led me to where my, where I am. If I'd only had good coaches, I probably wouldn't have been so interested in the field. Yeah, yeah, no good point. Well, let's get to this. Your latest paper was absolutely fascinating. And it's something that really caught my eye. And I read this before I even uh, reached out and met you. So so I wanted to get to this. Your, your latest paper is called The Coach's Eye, Exploring Coaching Decision-Making During Talent Identification. Now, this title is a little, um, uh, it might sound, uh, maybe it's misleading because there's way, way more to this conversation than, than that title might tell. Because when I started reading it, oh man, it was like a rabbit's hole or a Pandora's box that opened. But fascinating, fascinating concepts you're investigating here. Uh, well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, there's only so many words we can put in the title. Otherwise, it would just be the whole paper, wouldn't it? Right. Good point. Very good point. Very good point. Hey, so let me ask you this right off the bat. You know, when you took on this particular project, um, what were you looking for? And were there any surprising findings that, that sort of took you aside and went, hmm, that's interesting? Um, yeah, so this whole project um, was part, so this particular paper was part of my bigger PhD project, um, which in itself, yeah, had a lot of surprising findings. And what led me to this paper in particular was that I came into my project, um, me and my supervisors were all ready to go and talk to a bunch of coaches, um, specifically in the combat sports. So we're talking boxing, judo and taekwondo, um, come in, talk to those coaches and come away from those conversations with a list of physical attributes that we could test. And that would be how we figured out talent ID in those sports. So that, that was our plan. Um, but then I went in and actually did the interviews. Um, and so in this paper, I believe it's 30-something coaches, 20-something coaches. I've forgotten. But lots and lots of international um, international level combat coaches that I spoke to to make sure we could get sort of a range of opinions. And what we found was that there was no standard list of tests or attributes or anything like that that came out. Um, and so that was really surprising to me that I couldn't get coaches to sit down and give me a list. Um, I was expecting every coach to give me maybe a different list, slightly different orders of attributes. You know, some might think that strength was more important than speed or whatever. Um, but yeah, every time I tried to get the coaches to yet yeah, just give me a list, tell me what is the most important factor in your sport. Um, they either really struggled to articulate that um, or it was a lot of the sort of more intangible aspects. Um, so, you know, a lot of them came back with something like coachability. Coachability is the most important thing, but what is coachability in right. an athlete? How can we measure that? Like <laughs> we, we really can't. Um, and, you know, something like coachability is incredibly subjective. Um, so that's, that's probably the most, um, interesting finding I think that came out of this particular study was that, yeah, um, that there is no set attribute. Um, even, you know, yes, I talked to coaches across three sports, but even within each of the sports. So, you know, like the boxing coaches, they couldn't necessarily agree on which physical attributes were the most important, which psychological attributes were the most important. They couldn't even tell me whether it was physical or psychological that was more important, um, yeah, it's just such a combination. And so that really got me thinking more about this idea sort of of gut instinct, um, that idea that coaches don't necessarily look entirely at 
those physical attributes. Athletes spend so much time working on improving their strength, their speed, things like that, which are obviously important for their sport. Don't get me wrong. Um, but they focus so much on the numbers. Um, so it's never or very rarely about being fast enough to do what they need to do. It's about, you know, getting that time down by, you know, milliseconds each time. It's about getting stronger, you know, by 500 grams every time you lift rather than worrying about how that actually translates into their sport, sporting performance, which is what coaches are looking at. They're looking at sort of the whole package, not raw numbers, um, which if we go back to, you know, sort of, you know, the combines, you know, NFL combine, NHL combine, those are all numbers. The athletes are training to get the fastest sprint time they can get, the highest vertical jump they can get, rather than concentrating on their actual football or hockey skills, which again is what coaches tend to look at more than those raw numbers. Yeah, I know. That's a really interesting concept. We're talking with Dr. Alex Roberts, uh, doctor of sport and exercise science and co sport coaching at the Trobe University in Melbourne, Australia. You know, that the, the, the paper, again, we'll, we'll put a link to the paper on our social media for everybody if they want to get into it. Uh, just reading the abstract, by the way, kept me up at night, got me thinking about things. So, so it was fascinating. But, but isn't that interesting how, how coaches, coaching elite athletes in similar sports or the same sport have different ideas of what might be important? That is fascinating. Yeah. Um, and uh, probably the most interesting part that I found out of all that, you know, I think the whole thing's interesting, but you know, it is my area. Um, the thing I found really interesting was the idea that different coaches within the same sport do look for completely different attributes. Um, so they're all going to give me the same list of items. Um, but that order is going to be very, very different. So, you know, no coach is going to turn around and say that strength isn't important, but coach A may say that strength is the most important thing. So let's talk boxing. Punch strength is the most important thing. How hard they can punch is the number one thing I look for. Whereas coach B might say, you know, yeah, punch strength is important. You need to be able to, you know, land a punch and hopefully push your opponent back a bit with it. But I would say that's probably the least important out of my list of 20 things that I'm looking for. Um, and that was just, again, so variable, even within the same sport. I expected to see differences between the sports. You know, boxing requires a very different skill set to judo. Um, but, yeah, this idea that out of the 12 coaches, 12 boxing coaches that I interviewed, or eight boxing coaches that I interviewed, I got eight different lists of eight different orders of attributes. It just it just blew my mind. Yeah, I couldn't that, understand how international level coaches have such different opinions. Yeah, it is that is fascinating to me as well. When everybody's competing at the same level, coaches are so responsible for that environment. And environments more than just the positive environment, the great work experience, or or the accountability or the expectation. It's also what exactly is it that we value, and what are we going to work on to get better? That's a big big part of it. The coach really determines this the entire environment that that athletes would be going into. And the fact that there's such discrepancy, even at the highest level from coach to coach, that is just it's almost uncanny, isn't it? Yeah, it's it definitely raises a lot of interesting questions around. And I don't use this word lightly, but bias in coaches. Um, a lot of people tend to associate bias with being a bad thing. Um, but I don't think that's necessarily true. Um, so when I dug down into my findings a little deeper, you know, I continued talking to coaches, did some other research. I found that 
the differentiating factor between coaches and what they thought was important came down more to the coach's ability rather than the athlete's ability, um, which I think is kind of funny when we talk about that idea of coachability and we tend to think that's an athletic trait, but if it's coach ability, it comes down to that coach. Um, so, you know, the coach that said that strength was the most important thing was the same coach that told me later in the interview that he doesn't have access to a strength and conditioning coach. Um, so all of his athletes have to be as strong as they're going to get by the time he gets them. Um, so that's why strength is so important to him. Um, another coach who thought that mental toughness or resilience, whatever you want to call that was the most important factor. He also believed that mental toughness or resilience is an inherent trait that can't be developed. So he felt that if an athlete didn't already have mental toughness, he couldn't help them develop. Um, they needed to already have that when they entered his training program. Whereas, again, Coach C thought that mental toughness was something that could be developed. So, yes, it was high on his list, but it wasn't the most important thing because, yeah, I can work with that. I can fix that. Um, and, you know, same thing across the board. Technique, tactics, um, you know, different fighting styles, even different physical attributes in the athletes. Some coaches work better with long-limbed athletes because they know how to work with that style of fighting. That's what they were as an athlete, or that's most of the athletes they've coached have had really long limbs, whereas other coaches can only work with sort of, not only, but prefer to work with, you know, shorter, stockier athletes because, again, that's the fighting style that they know and they're familiar with and know how to help. Um, so, yeah, I found that a lot of what was guiding the coaches' ideas of what was important was highly related to what they felt they as a coach were able to develop or enhance within these athletes. They weren't going to pick athletes that they couldn't help, that they couldn't coach. That is fascinating. It's not something you would ever think about, you know, unless maybe you're in the elite world of sport performance, but it's called coaching bias. And again, as you mentioned, that's not a negative thing. That's just uh, coaches preference one way or another on maybe the athlete's attributes or what he feels is valuable to him or her or what they coach particularly might feel they can help the athlete in the best way, the, the best way they can help the athlete, I should say. So that's a fascinating thing. Alex, I wonder, I wonder if, if that's the case in the elite coaches that you uh, interviewed, I wonder what we would find if we were to do that same type of questionnaire um, at the youth and developmental levels, you know, where it's volunteer mom and dads, you know, maybe, maybe we have a, a mom that played, you know, a, a, a national team field hockey and she had real rough and gruff coaches and maybe that's her coaching style and coaches, kids that can't deal with that. Maybe aren't the, aren't the athletes she would pick for her team. Do you think that's a reasonable expectation? Maybe it's a reason for us just to be really, really aware of our selection process. Maybe we should be, um, you know, we test and prod our athletes for selection so much. Maybe we need to make sure we have the right coach working with the right athletes. All these things come to mind when you say this whole, I mentioned this whole concept of coaching bias. Fascinating stuff. Yeah. Um, so I guess one of the things that again came out of my research was that when we talk about that, I guess, coaching bias, the way coaches make these decisions is that it, it's the result of their own experience. So the coach's experience as both an athlete and a coach, um, as well as the time spent with the athlete. So as they get to know athletes better, they tend to make different selections than they do on sort of the on the spot decisions, um, as well as the context around the decision. So as far as, you know, like 
mums out there coaching her, you know, middle school field hockey team or whatever. Yeah, her experience as a player is going to have a massive impact on who she picks for the teams. Um, like her education as a coach, maybe she's taken a level one coaching course. Maybe she hasn't. Maybe she's just, um, yeah, they're helping out. All, all those things come into that mix in helping a coach, um, yeah, identify talent, select their talent for their team. Um, and I think a really po- important part of that is that idea of context and time, because we also found that coaches tend to pick athletes, like I said, based on their own ability, but their coaching ability is also related to the time they've got available to train that athlete. If I'm picking an athlete for a middle school hockey team, I've only got them for one season. And whether I get asked to come back and coach next season is very dependent on how those athletes do. So I'm going to pick probably the better athletes that are already pretty much developed so that all I have to do is stand and direct. I don't have to teach them the skills and give them the three or four years that they need to learn those skills. Um, whereas if I'm picking for, say, you know, some sort of development squad, I'm picking this group in order to develop their skills. And my job is not um, dependent on their outcome in competition. My job is dependent on how much they improve over the season. Then I'm going to pick a very different group of athletes. Sure. Um, so again, those expectations put on coaches is a really important part of that equation. We can't be expecting coaches to pick for long-term development if that coach's job is riding on them winning the competition that season. Sure. You were part of it. Division one NCAA sport is a classic example of that. That's not a developmental model in there as much as everybody would like to think it's a place for athletes to go and, and learn and develop. It is a let's compete and let's win now type of environment. That would be a good example of that, right? Yeah, most definitely. Um, I think the way the NCAA system does rowing, because again, that was my sport is a little different again, because rowing such a unusual, let's use unusual sport. A lot of high schools don't do it. So they actually have a walk-on system for um, college rowing teams. They take, most college teams take about 30 walk-on athletes who have never even seen a boat before each year, in addition to their varsity squad. Um, So rowing does have that kind of developmental program, but again, they only have one year to develop those athletes. If you're in a walk-on squad and by the end of the year, you're not ready to make varsity, then, you know, sort of that's it. Thanks for coming. Yeah. Good luck. (laughs) Whereas, um, yeah, so they're selecting those athletes with a year to develop, but also only one year. Whereas if we look at, you know, sort of a division two or division three team, um, they're a lot more about that sort of long-term development. Yes, winning's great, but yeah, nowhere near as much as um, D1. So you look at basketball, you know, how many one and done athletes are there out there? They come in, they play their one year of college basketball because that's what they need to do to go to the draft. And then off they go. So those coaches are not picking basketball athletes in order to develop them. They're picking them in order to win this season. Alex, isn't that fascinating? I think you're the only researcher that at least I know who's done a deep dive into this side of coaching. And I like how you framed it in your paper, the coach's eye, exploring coach decision-making during talent identification. It's called coaching bias. And that's not a negative thing here. It just happens to be maybe the preference a coach might have in the athletes they select for the system that they're running for sure, for what the organization values, but also maybe more so in light of how the coach feels he or she can best help the athletes coming in. They select athletes they feel they can really impact based on their skills. 
man, that opens up so many questions, not just at the elite and national Olympic uh, levels of sport, but also at the grassroots and developmental levels of sport. Ladies and gentlemen, we have to cut out for a quick break. Hang on over this one. When we come back, we'll continue our look at why coaches select the players they do and how this influences sport from grassroots right up to professional sport. We've got that and much more with Dr. Alex Roberts right after this on Crush Performance. You're listening to Crush Performance with Jeff Crushell. Get the Crush podcast, newsletter, and performance links at crushperformance.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone. We are Crush Performance, and we're well into episode number four of our Talent and Talent ID series. There's some fantastic music from our good friends, The Whale and the Wolf. Check them out at whaleandthewolf.com. Their new video or their new song, Veins, is absolutely amazing, and they self-produce all this stuff. Talk about creativity and high performance. Oh, I love these guys. Love them. Check them out for sure. All right. Talent and Talent ID along with the Crush Brain Game, are two of our main themes here for 2021. And over the course of the year, we're going to be bringing you, along with all of the other great Crush content, little mini-series on both of our major themes. It might be two or three or even four episodes at a time, but each episode will focus in on one particular element or one area of focus on our themes. And today has been a beautiful example of exactly that as we talk about coaching with Dr. Alex Roberts from Latrobe University in Melbourne, Australia. Alex, thanks for hanging on over the break. You know, it's very interesting if we think about this and the fact that coaches, you know, pick based on their personal, I wouldn't call it preferences, but just their personal bias is such a perfect word. And again, not in a negative context, right? It's just like, I, I know, for example, you know, I was lucky enough to work uh, at the highest level of, of Major League Baseball, and I worked in professional hockey and professional football as well. And it's so true. The more time I spent with the athletes, um, um, the more I changed my approach with each and every one of them. You know, you kind of get this feedback of, hey, well, this is what this guy's about, whether it's from the coaches or from the scouts or whatever it might be. But in my position as a strength and conditioning and performance coach, I was with these guys every single day. So you get to know them intimately. You, 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 you of course, bond because you're with together every day and you create great friendships and you really do want to help them succeed. There's a great collaboration with the coaching staff to make sure that what we're doing behind the scenes really does support the coaches' efforts and the gameplay efforts for sure. But you'd get all these opinions of the players. But then when you get in there every day working with them, you quickly learn that you have to formulate your own opinion of those. Um, the coaches are so important in all that. Alex, it would make sense then that the coaches um, are should be readily involved or or maybe majorly involved in the selection process of athletes. Doesn't it make sense? I mean, right now we have these selection processes, at least in North America here, where selection organization and teams get together and they pick the players and the coaches get the players where they really have no say in which players are coming to their team. And I think that might, based on what we're talking about here today, not quite be the way to go. Um, yeah, I think it's like, it's obviously very context dependent. Um, you know, the way that I tend to split up sports, at least sort of in my head, 
is we have sort of the, what I call CGS sports. So sports that are measured in centimeters, grams or seconds. So, you know, track, swimming, weightlifting, things like that. Very objective measures. Um, you know, we know who won. There's no um, or very rarely any controversy around that kind of thing. I think coaches still need to be involved in the selection of those athletes, especially for sort of long-term squads. Um, but those were a lot easier for us to just sort of almost do away with the coach aspect of selection because it's all time-based. We can look at your times in the last 10 years and see how much you've improved and measure that improvement against other athletes. Um, so there's that side of things. And then there's the other two kinds of sports. So team sport, hockey, you know, NFL, basketball, whatever. Um, and then uh, so the combat sports, um, combat sports or opponent-based sports. So tennis, those kind of sports would come in there as well. Um, in team-based and opponent-based sports, the individual is, so let's start with team-based sports. The individual can be, can have a lot more varied strengths and weaknesses. Um, so you can be a very offensive player and not have very good defensive skills and still make a high-level team as a team athlete because you've got other players to sort of back you up and things like that. Right. As far as coaches selecting for those teams, oftentimes, and we see this again in the draft and things like that, that coaches will pick an athlete not necessarily because they're the best athlete, but because they're the one that fills the best hole in their roster at the moment. They'll be picking an athlete, again, sorry, based on the athlete's skills this time, but to fill a particular need within a team. So just because you've been picked as the number one draft pick doesn't necessarily mean that you are the best athlete in the draft that year. It means that the team who had first pick needed that particular set of skills. Um, and I think people get very caught up in this idea of draft order and, you know, quality of an athlete based on draft order, um, which I don't think is right because they're filling holes based in a team. Um, so coaches in that sense, I think, need to be involved in that process. Obviously, they've got their bigger picture view of what the team's going to look like, where they're trying to go, what the team strategy is. They know who's going to be retiring in the next few years. They know who's got, you know, perhaps niggling injuries that, you know, maybe even the media doesn't know about. Um, so they are filling those teams. And I think it's really important that the coach is involved in that process, but I think it's equally important that the coach is involved the whole way through that process. Um, you mentioned scouts earlier, which is something I would love to research a bit more in the future. This idea of the relationship between the scouts and the coaches, how well do the scouts perception of talent match up with the coaches right. perception? Um, cause the scouts are just out there looking for who they think are good. But if we're talking about this idea of bias and that, you know, every coach is looking for something slightly different, surely every scout is also looking for something slightly different. And if scout A has a different perception of what's important, what's going to help the team most than the coach, then is the scout showing the coach all of the footage? Is the, coach, is the scout showing the coach the right athletes to look at? I understand that the scout exists to sort of help the coach streamline, you know, their selection processes. Um, but yeah, how do we know that the scout's even showing that coach the right athletes? Um, we've got no idea. So I think that's a really interesting question as to sort of when a head coach, an elite coach needs to get involved at that um, in that process, whether it should be earlier, whether there needs to be more athletes put in front, um, you know, whether it's just a case of we need much stronger conversations between scouts and coaches about what they're looking for in an athlete, what a coach can work with. Um, so I think that's really fascinating. Um, but then if we look at individual, uh, sorry, opponent-based sports, tennis, boxing, things like that, those are very different again, because there's no team for an athlete to hide behind 
for want of a better word. They have to be good at every aspect of the sport. There's no matter of selecting an athlete because they fill a gap in their team. The athlete is either good enough to make the team or they're not. Um, and that coach has to make, they have to make that decision. Um, in combat sports, they're all weight-based. So you have to pick the best athlete in your 75 kilo category. They have to be good at attack and defense and you know whatever else is involved in there. Um, so I think the coach in those sports probably needs to be involved through the entire process. They need to be involved, um, you know, as early as possible, as often as possible, seeing these athletes in as many different environments as possible so that when it comes time to select their top teams, the coach knows the athletes. It's not a matter of just seeing them at a competition for one day. It's not a matter of having, you know, the state level coaches putting forward their top three athletes and the coach picking from those. Um, I think that head coach needs to be involved for a much longer time. I don't know how long, I don't know in what context yet, that is future research. Um, but yeah, I really think the coach needs to be involved earlier and longer in as many situations as possible. Yeah, sure. That sounds great. And that goes along with some of the uh, conversations we've had in the series so far, talking about collaboration amongst the team and also through the pathway. You know, one thing we talked about earlier was the idea of, you know, these elite coaches having their biases, but also think about the developmental levels, the recreational side. It's such an important part of sport. And of course, the ultimate goal of any, I think, really true sporting um, uh, organization or or system, let's say, whether it's the Australian system, the Canadian system, or the U.S. system, Russia, Germany, doesn't matter. There's great athletes coming from all corners of the earth right now. But um, the the idea of the pathway, I really do enjoy this. Now, some kids get involved in sport because they like the social aspect or just the fun aspect. Some kids catch fire and they want to do the high performance pathway. But that recreational level of sport is vitally important for the elite levels. Uh, but it's also important for society at large as well, right? And coaches are a huge, huge part of that system. And they're mostly volunteer. Yeah, I think that's something that um, we really need to consider when talking about this idea of, you know, talent ID, selection, things like that. We really can't be putting more on our community coaches than what we already are. They're already doing a massive favor essentially especially the volunteer coaches without them community sport wouldn't happen without community sport we lose elite sport um you know there's that whole idea of you know cream rising to the top well the cream can't rise to the top if there's nothing for them to rise through in order to get the best athletes we need to have a really strong base for them to develop through for of athletes for them to compete against um making sure that that competition is as strong as it can be for as long as possible um, all you need to do is look at um, countries that, you know, perhaps aren't very good at sports. Let's look at Australia and snow sports. Um, sure, we have a couple of athletes that are very good. Um, but on the whole, we don't have a very competitive base of, of snow sports in Australia, funnily enough. Um, so we have very few high-level athletes in compared to Australians in swimming. Um, and the main reason for that is that participation base. We don't have athletes starting the sport. So how are we supposed to develop them through? those that are very competitive, how are they meant to get better? It's very hard to get better at a sport when you're already the best and there's no one pushing you to stay the best. Um, and again, in Australia, very hard to get overseas and things like that. So if you're a you know junior national champion in a sport that's only got 100 people competing in it, then how are you supposed to get any better from that point? So the idea of having community coaches 
that are there and able to support these athletes at all levels. You know, we often have volunteer coaches, even at the national level, they're being paid very little, um, you know, maybe having their costs covered, if anything. They are there for their love of the sport. So when we're talking about identifying talent and coaches, you know, are responsible for it and need to be more involved in the process, I think we do need to be very cautious that we're not yet putting too much on those junior coaches. If we want them to get better at identifying talent, if we want them to get better at selecting for long-term rather than short-term and things like that, we need to incentivize them appropriately. We need to pay them. If we want professional-level coaches at a community level, we need to pay them because that's how you get that. They're not, they've got no incentive to get any better if they're just there as volunteers, um, which that's a whole nother conversation, the idea of volunteerism and coaching. Um, but I think, yeah, we just need to make sure that we manage those expectations um, that, yeah, we're not putting, again, too much on those coaches because that's a very, a very dangerous thing to do to start saying that our junior coaches need to identify better. How are they supposed to do that? They don't have the resources. Right. No, no. So it's such an important point, uh, such an important point. And you know what? Just let's just God bless every one of those volunteer coaches that get out and allows allow the kids to get out and play and just have fun. Right. You know, one of the alarming things that we're concerned about over here in North America, I don't know what it's like in Australia, is, but but our dropout rates are incredibly high, especially around that 13, 14 and 15 year your mark, which kind of makes sense, right? Because that's sort of a uh, an important age range in maturity, and you have different, you get different interests, whether it's music or drama or mechanics or school, whatever it might be. Also, during that time, you know, as much as we see the numbers, you know, with dropout rates as high as seventy percent in in organized sport, some of those numbers you have to be cautious with because that that some of that is is kids. Um, dropping extra sports and focusing on one, for example. So we're losing kids to some sports. But either way, we do have a dropout rate there. And, and the number one reason is kids aren't having fun anymore. Um, do you guys have that kind of an issue over there in Australia? We definitely do. Um, I don't know the numbers exactly, but we do have a significant dropout rate, sort of, as you said, between that 12 to 16 age group. Um, and we find that um, it's even more prevalent in girls. Um we know that, yeah, younger girls are more likely to drop out of sport. They're more likely to do it earlier um, and they're less likely to specialise um, to yeah, mess with some of those numbers. They're, they're more likely just to drop out altogether. Um, and, you know, again, we know there's a myriad of reasons for that. You know, there's body image issues and, you know, just physical development, girls developing faster than boys. And so, you know, not wanting to go run around anymore because they're just feeling self-conscious. Um, and another thing, and this this is purely anecdotal, but it matches with um, the numbers, is that girls tend to like to have more variety in what they're doing. Um, a lot of girls don't respond to pressure in the same way that boys do at that age, in that girls, if they're told that they have to specialize into a single sport, they're more likely to drop out than if they're facilitated to go and do multiple sports, even if they're prioritizing one sport, being able to play other sports. Because again, for girls, it really is that social aspect. They're there to have fun with their friends. And as soon as we put too much high performance pressure on them, they drop out. So if they can do one sport at a high level and do other sports um, just for fun, they're more likely to stay involved. But we just don't have a lot of those opportunities for athletes. There's all that pressure to specialize. And I know that 
you know, you've been talking to um, Joe Baker and a bunch of other people about this idea of sports specialization. So I won't get into that too much, but I think that's a really important thing for, again, coaches to consider when they're identifying and selecting athletes that we know it's good for an athlete's development to play multiple sports. Um, so, you know, don't dissuade an athlete from playing another sport on weekends. If they have to miss a training session for their primary sport to play a game in another sport, let them do it. At that age, it's fine. Um, you know, as long as they're warming up and they're not likely to get injured and those kind of things, it's a really important aspect of their development and in keeping them engaged within sport. Yeah, no, I really like that. We're talking with Dr. Alex Roberts, who specializes in sport and exercise science and sport coaching at Latrobe University in Melbourne, Australia. So I have three daughters, Alex, and I've coached them uh, through the ranks. And it is a little bit different. And, and I think one of the issues that we have in my middle daughter uh, loved baseball. So she wound up playing baseball, but there were no girls teams. So she got in playing with the boys. And I find this, you know, being a little conscious of, of my girls and, and female sports because I've been involved. Um, we we can't treat girls like boys. That's one of the big mistakes I think that are that are that's happening in sport is we try to put the same parameters on our girls as we do as the boys, and and it just doesn't work that way. It can't work that way. Yeah, um, I mean, it, there's a lot of things in the literature at the moment. You know, women's sport being a big talking point at the moment, and looking at the physiology. And one of the big sort of taglines of that is that women are not just small men. So same thing applies for kids. The developing athletes, girls are not, depending on the age, bigger boys. <laughs> like that, they are two very different groups of people. We need to treat them differently. Um, I think the idea of you know equality keeps getting caught up in there. We need to treat them the same. No, we need to provide them with the same opportunities, but that doesn't mean that we need to treat them in exactly the same way. Um, so yeah, I find that. That's a really interesting aspect, again, from selection and identification, is that a lot of coaches, um, community coaches, whatever, tend to be men. Men tend to be more involved in the coaching space. And so we end up with men coaching women's teams, men selecting women's teams or girls' teams. And they identify and select athletes based on male attributes. Um, so, again, based on my research, talking to the coaches – um, particularly, and I'm going to use boxing as an example again here because women's boxing is relatively new. Um, it was so it's only been legal in Australia since 1999. Oh, really? Um, and yeah, so very new sport in the scheme of things. Um, and it's only been in the Olympics since 2012. So this is only the third Olympics that's had boxing as even an option for women to compete in. So very new. But when I was talking to the boxing coaches about how they select female athletes versus male athletes, most of them said that they select based on the same things. Um, you know, they're looking for strength. They're looking for grit. They're looking for, you know, that brutality or the animal or what, whatever phrases they like to use. Um, but, so they're identifying them based on exactly the same principles. But when it comes to the actual fight, um, again, in talking to athletes, to judges, to um, coaches, Female athletes are judged differently in boxing. Um, even though they've got the same rules, the judges are assessing them differently. In boxing, you know, scoring is, you know, it's done by five judges um, and they're fairly subjective in how they're scoring. They're meant to be scoring, you know, number of, um, number of punches landed along with technique and a whole bunch of other things that I won't pretend to understand. Um, but when they judge men, they judge the men based on how many punches they land 
how hard they were and their technique in doing so. Whereas when a woman steps into the ring, she can fight in the same way a man does. Um, Oftentimes that's called brawling within the women's context. Oh, yeah, she's a real brawler. She fights just like a man. And she'll lose, not because she's not landing more punches, but because she doesn't have the finesse, because she doesn't look pretty while she's doing it, because Mm. her punches aren't, you know, very delicately placed or delicate's probably the wrong word, but very precisely placed. Um, She's just gone in wailing and landing all these hits, which in the men's division would win, but in women's doesn't, even though by the rules, they should be scored the same. So that brings up, yeah, this very interesting idea of identifying athletes based on the men's game, um, but then subjecting them to the rules, the restrictions of the women's game. And I think you'd find that sort of across sports, especially in ones that sports that are similar but not the same. So lacrosse, um, you know, the men's game and the women's game theoretically being the same, but having very different rules and tactics and techniques used if we have a male coach who's played male lacrosse growing up, who's then coaching a women's team, we're going to end up with a women's team that plays very differently to a woman's team coached by a woman, um, just because of those differences in, yeah, everything about the sport, really, which, again, I think that's a really fascinating thing that I'd love to look into further is that idea of um, the gender of the coach and how they select different athletes. Yeah. There's definitely something there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. And that goes into the rule changes maybe and and, and interesting mm-hmm. how we treat the athlete, athletes a little bit differently. You know, you talked uh, one time about uh, the, as an example, like the rule changes in Taekwondo and how that really, really sort of upset the balance inside of that sport. And, and we see similar issues in, in the NBA as an example, you know, if we were to, if we were to change a rule, uh, let's say, as you, as you mentioned before, uh, when we talked you know, if you were to lower the net in the NBA, you would be selecting an entirely different type of player, right? So all the, there's a fine balance between all these all these different, uh, uh, I guess, intimate traits that are involved in sport performance. Yeah, I think something that we need to, again, keep in mind when we talk about this idea of talent ID and selection, and I keep saying ID and selection is probably a good time to get into that. Um, so I view talent identification and talent selection as very different concepts. Um, so talent identification, in my view, is the name of sort of the whole ongoing process. Every time a coach sees an athlete in any context, they're making some kind of judgment or what I like to call a forecast of that athlete's talent. I've seen you out on the field for five minutes. I've made some kind of assessment of you, whether that's something that I'm willing to, you know, say out loud to anybody else or not is a different story, but I've made some kind of judgment. So, um, I said, I call that a forecast. So the coach is taking the information they have available to them at that point in time and making a prediction for the future. So if we think about a weather forecast, we can predict what's happening tomorrow by what we can see around us, but we can only predict what's happening in a month or in a year with the information we've got. We know that the further ahead we make that weather forecast, the less likely it is to be accurate. Yet when we're talking about talent ID, we somehow expect coaches to forecast four years ahead how well this athlete's going to do. Mm. Um, Sometimes even longer, if we're talking, you know, talent identification camps for our under 13 ice hockey squad. Well, yeah, you're now asking a coach to tell us how these athletes are going to go in 10 years. Um, We know that forecasts are only as accurate as the information being put in. And there's a lot of information that can happen between now and 10 years or even now and a month away. So being able to predict athletic performance is really difficult in that sense. 
Whereas when we're talking selection, selection is usually about picking athletes for a competition that's upcoming. Okay. So again, let's talk the draft. We're selecting athletes because we want them to compete this season. Um, yes, you know, you could argue that there is some aspect of development in there. We're picking them to join our team for the long term, but it's a selection because we want them to compete as they are now. Um, when we're picking high school teams, same kind of thing. It's selection because we're picking them for how they're going to compete this season versus, again, that identification, that idea of forecasting. If we pick a development squad, we are selecting them based on what we think they're going to do in a number of years, given right. the right development opportunities and things like that. So where that then gets kind of messy is that if we're asking a coach to identify an athlete now that's going to be good in two years, four years, 10 years, we also have to assume that the rules of the sport are going to be the same in two years, four years, 10 years. There's no point identifying an athlete now who can run 100 meters in the same time that Usain Bolt can, okay, or that Usain Bolt could at that same age. Because by the time, you know, four years later when they're, you know, trying to make the Olympic teams and things like that, that time is going to be faster than what it is now. We know that sports evolve. We know that people get faster. So picking based on today's success is not going to necessarily help an athlete in four years. Same thing for the rules. So the Taekwondo example you're talking about, Taekwondo recently changed the rules. I think it was sort of 2017, 2018. They changed some of their rules um, to make it more exciting for television. But those rule changes ended up actually changing the body type of Taekwondo athletes that were more successful because it used to be that in order to be successful in Taekwondo, you needed to be tall, skinny, and flexible. Very, you know, very basic. There's a lot more to it than that, but let's go with that. Tall, skinny, and flexible to win in Taekwondo. The rule change made it that the preferred technique of those athletes couldn't be used anymore or didn't score points anymore. So now the body type that is winning in Taekwondo is slightly shorter, a bit heavier um, for their height. Um, and not necessarily as, or a bit more powerful. Yep. So still flexible and everything, but a bit more powerful, a bit more compact build because that's now what's winning in Taekwondo. Mm, interesting. So effectively what happened there was that overnight, the athletes that were winning gold medals at world championships are now struggling to make, you know, top eight, things like that. Athletes that couldn't even get a look in, in the top sort of 16, top 32, are now making top eights, are now winning, um, you know, world championship medals um, just because of this one little rule change, which also means that athletes that were picked 10 years ago, five years ago, are now struggling to compete, to learn in a sport that is no longer suited to them um, or as much as it was a few years ago. So same example in the NBA, if we all of a sudden made the basket, you know, only five feet high, that's not to say that, you know, Steph Curry wouldn't still be a good basketballer if the um, if it was only five foot high, but it's saying that the next generation of athletes coming through, all of a sudden, we've got a lot of those shorter athletes that are going to get a look in. Um, you know, the more powerful athletes are going to get a look in rather than, you know, the ones that some of them are there purely because of their height. Their skills may not be good, but, or as good, but their height's there. Height is no longer important. If we remove that from the equation, majority of people that have been playing basketball because they're tall now lose that natural advantage. 
Oh, that is such a strong, strong point. And everybody, I think, can relate to this. You know, Alex, we look at the NHL and ice hockey here because of all the issues we've had with concussion and health and wellness of player and concern for player safety, rightfully so. Some of the rule changes in the game have really, really changed. Yes, the type of player who's playing the game. If you look back in the 70s to an average NHL hockey team and what those players look like, it doesn't look like anything like that right right now so and that's again because of rule changes isn't that an interesting perspective you know here's a little story for you i'll just share with you as as we wrap this up here uh, this has been such a great conversation but you know uh, it was about uh, about a year ago uh, two years ago about two years ago now um i got called up by a tennis coach who i who i know quite well and he was dealing with a really a really great talented young female tennis player here in canada and uh, she was getting to the point where junior national championships were happening and international competition was was on the plate and their parents come and they really wanted her. They're really challenging the coach and say, why isn't she training like like the pros? Why, why are we not training her like Serena Williams? And the coach had a, a brilliant response. He said, well, listen, first of all, she's not Serena Williams. So how about this? You know, why don't we why don't we look back and maybe train her like Serena Williams when Serena was 13, 14 years of age? Because if we train her like the 30, 35-year-old Serena who's dominating the world right now, this young girl's not going to have a chance. So, so you know, I, you know when, you, when you tell that story about you know, changing the rules and how we select players and, and our attitude towards our players' success in training, you made me think of that story. It's a really, really fascinating way to look at sport, isn't it? Yeah, I think like evolution happens all the time in sports. So I really think that as coaches – we need to be focusing on developing a good athlete, a good athlete that can solve problems, that can, um, you know, handle whatever situation may be thrown to them in the game. Because for all we know, we could wake up tomorrow morning and the rules have changed. So if you've got an athlete that has, you know, they're a one-trick pony, they're very good at exploiting one particular area or aspect of the rules, but they're not necessarily a great athlete in that sport, then, yeah, all of a sudden you could have somebody who's now no longer any good in that sport. So I think that's yet yeah, really important for sort of coaches to develop, um, coaches, especially working in youth development spaces. We need to create good athletes. We don't need to create good basketballers, good ice hockey players. We just want to create, yeah, good athletes, good people that can play the sport regardless of, you know, what rules may or may not exist in 10 years. Oh, Dr. Alex Roberts. Fascinating stuff. I love, again, the paper, everybody, is the coach's eye exploring coach decision-making during talent and talent identification. Some fascinating points here, Alex. We'll have to, you know, break this down over time, but the whole idea of coaching bias and and uh, talent ID versus versus talent selection, all these important points are, are really major conversations in our talent and talent ID uh, series here. Um, as we part ways here, and thank you for your time, for all the coaches out there, um, you know, the moms and dads who are volunteering or the organizations who are trying to develop high-performance pathways for athletes to strive to the next level, and even for the world-class athletes, any parting remarks from you on your research and where you where you think we might need to be going here in the near future? Um, I think sort of for... So let me break that down. For parents, um, I think it's important to make sure that... You are encouraging your kids just because they didn't make an under 13 squad doesn't mean that they weren't good enough. It might mean that, again, the coach wasn't necessarily looking for the skills that your child has at that time. It doesn't mean that they should give up. It doesn't mean anything else. It just means not the right time. 
um, for coaches, I think we need to be really careful to not get sucked into um, sort of self-fulfilling prophecies and things. You know, oh, I selected this athlete last year, which means I need to select them again this year. Um, you just need to go into every identification or selection opportunity with an open mind, see what's in front of you and do your identifications or selections based on that, not on reputation or anything like that. Um, and for organizations, I think it's really important that they consider the coach's role in these processes, um, opening up communication between the organization, the coach, the scouts, the assistant coaches, whoever else is involved in the ultimate selection process because you know oftentimes organizations have their own you know guidelines about what needs to be picked or not picked um making sure that that communication is open and clear so that the coach can get the athletes that they need and that they can work with but also so that we're not opening it up entirely to be completely subjective i definitely don't think that coaches should just have free reign to pick whoever they want with no oversight um but coaches definitely need to be a big part of that conversation and probably able to have a little more autonomy than they currently do within a lot of organizations. Oh, fantastic stuff. Dr. Roberts, thank you so much for your time today. What an absolutely fascinating conversation. I look forward to staying in touch and, and following up because there's, oh, there's a lot to unpack here. Really appreciate your time. Yeah, no, thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Sorry if I kind of went on there. I get excited about this stuff. Oh, no, trust me. That is not an issue here. I only wish we had more time. What a great one. What a great way to wrap up our three-part mini-series here, looking at the crush theme, talent, and talent ID. There'll be more to come later in the year, but I think it is worth it to go back and revisit all three of these episodes, plus the episode we had earlier in the year to set the whole series up with Dr. Joe Baker from York University. Look, we need to get our heads around this whole concept of talent, talent identification, talent development, and athlete development. Once we get better at that, I think our whole systems are going to move forward. But one of the big takeaways from the conversations we've had in this mini-series alone is the whole idea of awareness and collaboration through the whole system. We don't get a lot of feedback from the top. There's not a lot of sharing from age group to age group or level of competition to level of competition. And that might be one of the underlying problems why you know, we stall out. Our athletes are frustrated and, and leave the game early because they don't succeed or haven't reached their goals. One thing's for certain, we need to support our coaches more without question. We also need to collaborate internally more with our coaches, whether we're talking a professional organization, making sure the coaches' values match the organizational values that have to match the scouting and talent ID values. If those aren't in sync, Man, oh man, what an uphill battle. And then if you go down to the collegiate levels or high school levels or, you know, travel rep team, developmental sport, club teams, the same principles have to be applied. And that's part of that pathway collaboration that we need. But internally in our organizations, you know, if we consider the fact that we don't really have a consensus, uh, an agreement on what talent actually is. Each organization is going to have maybe a different interpretation or a different definition of what that might be, which is okay for now. It certainly is okay for now. As long as inside of those organizations, um, everybody's working off of the same song sheet. And then also for the feeder systems for your organization, you better make sure that the coaches who are under you developing and, and bringing athletes up through the system understand the pathway to your organization. 
you know, and it would be nice to have a beautiful, uh, synchronized, you know, streamlined system, but I just don't think that's practical or real, especially considering what we talked about today with Dr. Roberts, this whole idea of coaching bias. Think about it. Think about it. Why did you pick the boyfriend you picked? Why did you pick the girlfriend you picked? Why do you pick the foods you eat? Listen, because that's what you're familiar with, maybe. Or you've identified over your development, this is what I like. And that's not the same as somebody else. This whole idea of coaching bias is incredibly fascinating. And Dr. Roberts, I think, is one of the first people in the research world to really focus in on this. And that's why this conversation is worthy of a revisit. And listen, if you are an administrator, a GM, a director of coaching, director of player performance, you'll want to listen to this entire series. I promise you, that's why we're doing it. To get everybody thinking about things that maybe they haven't thought of before, or maybe to help people focus on things that they maybe haven't really spent time on before. What a wrap up to the series. I have to thank Dr. Alex Roberts from Latrobe University in Melbourne, Australia for today's conversation. I also have to thank Dr. Nima Deganzai for episode number two of our talent series. And last week, Lou Farah, sport researcher from York University talking about talent ID and the draft. What an incredible series. Much, much more to come. I want to thank all of you guys for tuning in and sharing the show. And I have to thank our advertising partners. Crush Performance would not be possible without our incredible partners and all of our supporters along the way. All right, that's a wrap, everybody. Have a fantastic week, and we'll talk to you next time right here on Crush Performance. Goodbye now. Don't forget to ride. I'm Jerry Petock, CEO of Radio Influence. I just wanted to take a quick moment to say thank you for downloading and subscribing to this podcast. There are a lot of people behind the scenes here at Radio Influence that work hard to keep you entertained day in and day out. If you'd like to get involved and advertise on this program, or you have some show ideas that you'd like to see us add to the Radio Influence family, please email us at contact at radioinfluence.com. We all have crazy schedules, so the fact that you took time out of your busy day to let us entertain you for a while means a lot. Without you, the listeners, we wouldn't exist. So thank you again for downloading and subscribing to this show. Don't forget to check out radioinfluence.com to see what other shows we also have to offer. All of Radio Influence's programming can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and of course, RadioInfluence.com. Radio Influence.